happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana. I'm also the NCC Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence, where I get to help school districts um, implement online, blended, distance, and digital learning. And joining me as always, from Oklahoma, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. Good evening, Jason. I am glad to be joining you and quite appreciative for your sound advice being four hours into my new ownership of the $146 Moto E4 Plus phone. So I feel quite giddy. It's a little bit like Santa has visited the house early. Nice. And so, to carry a previous conversation, you picked up a burner phone for what purpose? Well, the rumor is I will be heading to Cairo next week. And we have talked on the show at length about how we really don't want all of our information to fall into someone else's hands, even if we are not having anything to hide, quote unquote. <clears throat> it's really in our best interest to preserve our privacy, and that can include all the contacts that we have, as well as credentials for different accounts and other information. And so there's a number of number of articles that we have in the, in the show notes that we've looked at that, that say to do this. And so this was one of the phones actually recommended by one of the, the writers of the New York Times, and then you had, had recommended this one. And so it, uh, you know, you can purchase a little, a slightly smaller screen for, you know, just a hundred bucks. And the idea is, you uh, wipe the device uh, when you go before you go through customs, and then go ahead and restore it after you're through. And the articles I'm reading say, you know, you never want to lie to customs officials. You want to be honest, but you know, it's it's to your advantage. To, and again, this this is probably you know who knows? Maybe it's over the top. Maybe it's not. I don't know what they have in Egypt, right? We some of the articles we've said, you know, or read. <clears throat> talk about how these companies are developing systems, which even in, in just a matter of seconds, you're going to be able to put, you know, hook up an unlocked phone and it's going to be able to take all of that data off. I don't know what the capability is today, but anyway, I am hopefully going to be, be ready for that. So I may have to get your advice and do a little practice on, uh, you know, just, just the formatting. But I'm sure it's pretty much like the iPhone just, you yeah. know, Click erase, put in your credentials, and it's back to a stock phone that has no nothing on it. So, right, I'll, well, I'll have to figure out what I'm gonna, how I'm gonna fly with stuff. I think I'm, I've got a SIM card, so I guess I'm gonna download some podcasts and some audiobooks, perhaps to that. Anyway, I'm not sure, you know, how that's going to work. Right. Well, and one thing we should add to this is that uh, both Wes and I travel internationally a bit, and. Um, one of the things that's really been a big change for me is the fact that you can now take your phone um, um, and many carriers in the United States, and both, both Wes and I are T-Mobile um, uh, uh, customers, uh, T-Mobile offers this really great thing, and I have to pay a little extra month to, to get this to be even even cleaner. Um, but T-Mobile allows you to take your, 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 you know, American phone with its T-Mobile SIM card and essentially use it in other countries fee-free. And so this past summer, um, my wife and I spent a week in Sweden and we took, I, I'm on T-Mobile, the rest of my family right now is on Verizon, which is kind of a long story, but I was able to take my phone and literally open, you know, uh, start it up in, in Stockholm, Sweden, 
and it worked just fine. Like I got 4G access. I was getting text messages. I was able to call United States numbers from the phone. And it was really impressive. But even if you don't have that service as part of your cell plan, the other thing Wes is going to do uh, when he travels to Egypt will be to buy a local SIM card, which is something I also have experience with this past Christmas. My wife and I uh, brought a couple of, of, of burner phones with us. One of them was an Amazon phone like Wes picked up. Um, it's also a, uh, a really, really cheap phone that was a, a $50 phone that my wife used for the week. And we were able to you know, buy local SIM cards, uh, $10 in, in uh, London, $10 in Paris. Each had 10 gigs of data on it. We were also able to text back and forth to one another. And we had a, essentially a local number. So the, the times have changed quite a bit when it comes to productivity. And so it's pretty amazing stuff. Uh, yeah, absolutely. My uh, T-Mobile plan actually provides unlimited free texting and, and data. They don't have 4G, so I guess maybe it might be up just to 3G. But the calls are, I think, either 10 or 20 cents a minute. So the local data plan is what will, or local SIM card is what will uh, hopefully help with that. So yeah, pretty, pretty exciting. Yep. Well, lots of interesting things in the news week this week. And I want to get started with a, a topic that uh, we actually had mentioned um, in a couple of previous weeks, but it's becoming more real now. Um, Android headlines announced this morning that Chromebooks are going to get Windows software via uh, the crossover application. And um, I actually have a little demo tonight of that because um, I know Wes, if you saw my tweets to you today showing you screenshots of, of Windows apps running on the Chromebook, but this is a 2015 Chromebook Pixel. So it's a high-end Chromebook. I p- picked it up used on eBay. Um, and what is cool about a 2015 Chromebook is it allows you, or I'm sorry, Chromebook Pixel is it allows you to run Android apps. And so what's really cool about the crossover application, which is a, a longstanding application, crossover, which is uh, put out by Code Weavers. Code Weavers has allowed Mac users and Linux users to install Windows applications for, I think, over a decade now, and they utilize a code base um, that has been longstanding on Linux boxes. They've been trying to recreate APIs to allow you to run Windows software via a software platform called Wine for at, at least the last decade that, that I remember, if not farther back. But what Codeweaver does is it takes Wine and it makes it kind of user-friendly. So it essentially gives you a front-end um, interface so that you can install Windows software. And so what the good folks at Codeweaver have done is that um, they have uh, created this, this crossover app on Android. And what this allows is Android tablets and Intel-based Chromebooks that can run um, uh, you know, run Android apps, which is a relatively small list, but a growing list, to essentially run Windows software. So this morning, um, I had read this last night. Uh, uh, Wes tweeted this in response to someone that he was uh, talking to on Twitter. And so last or this morning, it took me just a few minutes to actually install a piece of Windows software on here. Now, the app is currently in beta, which means it's free. So I'm going to click on... Um, the icon for this app, and essentially, this is Firefox running on a Chromebook. 
which is just wild to me. And it took only about five minutes to get this installed and working. And this is a legitimate copy of Firefox, right? It runs Firefox. It has uh, access to all the extensions and the extension store. Um, when Fire or when the new Firefox comes out in, I think it's next week or the week after, the super fast one they've been teasing, I'm sure that will run um, on the Chromebook as well. It is a beautiful application. And so for those that either prefer Firefox or like me, like to go back and forth between the browsers because some stuff works better on Firefox, some stuff works better on Chrome. Um, that's really awesome. But here's the real kicker for me. Um, I, it took me a little longer to install Microsoft Office because I tried the Office 365 home download version, and it, 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 it almost immediately crapped out because it's trying to kind of download a copy of Office uh, to then install, which is how they do the home installer now. But I have access to a corporate version through work that's actually on um, an ISO. So I took that, threw it on a stick drive, copied it to my Chromebook, and then, um, and again, this is not the best way to, to demonstrate this, but um, here's Word loading up um, on a Chromebook, and you'll see that it's got the actual Word um, interface there, and that is legit Microsoft Word. And I can go in there and uh, load up a blank document, and there is the full Microsoft Word interface on a Chromebook. Um, and it just, it's really slick. And um, now, I, I, there's lots of caveats here. Um, I can't load up any any documents from my Google Drive on the Word. So that doesn't work. Uh, PowerPoint crashes, Excel crashes. Um, I tried to print off of Firefox, it was broken. But considering they just released the beta, and right now they're looking at a, I think it's a, it's a late spring 2018, maybe a summer 2018 release of the software commercially, I'd say we're in pretty good shape considering this is just the first day of an open beta. So really, really interesting stuff. Um, so that that's you know the news piece here. So first and foremost, Wes, um, any interest in a Chromebook more because you can suddenly install Microsoft apps? I, you know, it's on the horizon. I think that we, this is different than the container article we talked about last week, right? This is, this is wine and this is right. different. Yep. Yeah. It is so different. This, it's different in the same all at once. So yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I am, you know, in an early adapter, you know, kind of sense. Uh, and so, well, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, seeing how far Android has come and, you know, what its capabilities are. I mean, this, there, there have definitely been folks that have been fans of terminal based, thin client computing. You know, I, I, I visited just a few weeks ago with a, uh, you know, tech consultant that works with schools out in Western Oklahoma. And, and there are schools that he set that kind of thing up, you know, where they've got a, a fast server and then thin clients in the lab and being able to, to access things that way. And, and so you're going to need to back up with for me just a little bit. So you, you had an ISO of Word and then you had, was that being hosted on a server at work? And so that's sort of like being the server for this or I'm not, I'm not following exactly how how this is working so it it it's legitimately installed like on my local chromebook and what crossover does is that it wraps windows software or windows apis what you need to be able to enough run. not the whole full windows but just enough to run that app 
Exactly. And in fact, I had a similar discussion today with Mike in our offices, uh, who's my partner in crime and a lot of tech things as part of my day job. And he was comparing it to Parallels on the Mac, which allows you to open up applications. But that installs the full version that of Windows. That installs the full version. Yeah, this is a little exactly. bit different. Yeah. yeah. And so, for, for example, this uh, in the process of installing Word, um, it downloaded several apps or apps is not the word we would use in the old school, several programs for installing that installed some drivers, installed a couple of fonts for me to use so that it had the fonts in the background. They were licensed fonts that that I need to agree to some licensing terms before installing. And it is the full version, locally hosted version of Word. And the same with Firefox as well, that it's just the app. I downloaded and then Firefox, you know, Firefox works natively then um, in the interface because it's going through this, you know, thing it's wrapping around that. And the same works on Mac crossover, the same works on Linux crossover. And in fact, the crossover platform, which I used to use when I was a primary Mac user, um, is also useful for installing games as well. So uh, that was one of the ways that that software was was useful and and it's you know a commercial implementation of the wine system on um uh on on linux so pretty interesting stuff it's really uh interesting and we think about you know right now with adobe i just saw it sat in on part of a webinar this week about their cloud licensing structure and and i actually was thankful that they do device licensing for schools i've kind of been under the impression it all has to be you know per user and we've got, you know, classes and we've licensed Adobe stuff before, you know, to run it on X number of computers. And so anyway, it's, it's interesting because once you've got that license, you know, then on that machine, you can just download whichever, if you have the whole creative cloud, you download the, the specific apps that you want and you run them. But it's really interesting to think about what this might portend, you know, for the future of computing in terms of being not having to have a full operating system. And and also, as we've talked about, thinking about the security of this, where things are are sandboxed and contained a little bit more. The interoperability, like you mentioned, as far as opening up a Google Doc or how do you get to cloud storage and right. you know, how does that stuff. But I'm, I'm sure those those things are, are going to come. So pretty, uh, pretty exciting. So I, I do want to uh, uh, to relay a conversation I had on Twitter today about this. Uh, David Timoney, who is a um, professor of education at uh, Delaware Valley University, uh, pinged me on Twitter today and asked what the purpose of this is, because it seems to kind of go against you know, the nature of why Chromebooks are good or Chromebooks are desirable. And we had an interesting conversation back and forth. And I would argue that, you know, I can really do – 80, 85% of my job and, and what I do personally with computing using just a Chromebook. And in fact, after purchasing, um, a higher end Chromebook, I'm now absolutely convinced of that. This is, this is really a great carry around computer for me that I can do most things with. You add Android apps to that, we get to about 96, 97%. Um, because you add a couple of graphics programs in there, which is really the exciting thing for me. And then there are certain applications that I think work a little better in an app. For example, um, I have all of my Google Home and Google Wi-Fi stuff installed as apps on my Chromebook. And what is nice about that is that, as an example, that I use the Google Wi-Fi uh, system. Uh, it has an app only. There's no web-based interface that I can access via a, a, a laptop or desktop. So tonight when I was asking my router to prioritize this computer so that uh, I could produce a podcast that allowed me to do so by an app. 
but I still have about three, four percent of my time where a full-blown Windows app or Windows program would be useful. Um, as an example, that the the uh, portable Word, PowerPoint, and Excel apps are very good. They're not universally available on Chromebooks with Android apps yet. Number one and two, the Office uh, 365 web-based ones are also very solid, but when I need Microsoft Word, I don't need the basic stuff. If I need the basic stuff, I could just use Google Docs. I need some of the advanced document management that Word provides, which is not available in the web-based version or the app version. So for me, I think that it, it would be very idealistic to be able to have Chrome as my base, utilize that for, for almost all of my computing, and then just enter in applications when it's necessary or convenient to do so. So I think it's a very exciting platform. Absolutely. And from a security standpoint, which you can be sure we'll talk about a few security articles tonight as we normally do, um, there's just no comparison to a very thin, light, you know, Chrome environment that, that you can install and boot in eight seconds and, and be able to blow away, you know, to its original condition so quickly. It would change a little bit if you are downloading, you know, different ISOs and, and files and things like that. And I think you mentioned last week on the show, how interesting it was that there was a lo- the larger hard drive size on the newest uh, Google laptop, um, but this right. you know this may be the reason. So. Right. Well, and in fact, that uh, both uh, both of my better Chromebooks have just three two gigs of of storage on them, and suddenly a two hundred fifty six gigabyte hard drive makes more sense in a world where I'm downloading a lot of applications or downloading localized containers. And to you know, of course, apply the educational lens as we always do on the show. I mean, this means our Wi-Fi has got to be so robust at school, right? If we're yeah. continuing to rely on the cloud and we're you know blowing. Um, you know, desktops away and, you know, and, and downloading and just, it's, it's such a, a big, you know, requirement that we've got robust connectivity. So, yep, absolutely. So, okay, Wes, where should we go next, sir? All right. Well, I actually appreciate you uh, dropping so many uh, links in. I was a bit <clears throat> distracted with my, my new phone tonight, but I did put a couple in. And the first one I want to go to, uh, it, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, data breaches. So this is from beta news, uh, today, more than 7 mil- billion records exposed in 2017 data breaches. And we do need to, I was talking to somebody today, actually it was, uh, Tommy Snyder, our, uh, our, uh, uh tech support, um, guy and, and debate coach. And, and, you know, there's a whole industry now that is founded on this chicken little story. The sky is falling, you know, security is horrible, you know, take, take cover. And we, we do risk people having fatigue with respect to, you know, hacks and, and privacy and, and security and things like that. But there's some pretty astounding statistics in here in terms of growth. And I sure hope that we're not going to see these as trend lines. It says that the number of breaches, uh, to have been exposed, to have exposed a million or more records was 69 for the year. Um, and, uh, I guess, where was the main? Yeah, here's the 305%. Um, the study by risk-based security reveals that 78.5% of all records exposed came from just five breaches. Compared to, compared to the same period in 2016, the number of reported breaches is up 18%, but the number of exposed records is up 305%. So 
again, we're, we're, this is the broken record, but you know, two-step verification, password management, different passwords on every website, and long passwords. I had an opportunity today to uh, help one of our administrators uh, get set up with LastPass, and you know, it's a different. Th this really <laughs> wearing my tech director hat. I think this is the number one most important thing we can help individual educators change in terms of their behavior right now is to stop using the same password on every website, to have a password manager, and to be able to use a different long string password that they copy and paste. Um, as a note of personal, my, my wife, we've been using <clears throat> a password manager and, you know, she's gotten set up, but wasn't quite logged in, you know, and everything. And we just, we got that set tonight on her laptop. She's able to log in. Actually, what happened is her classroom podcast has been on opinion and they stopped hosting it. And we had to move everything over to a, another platform called Podient. And anyway, she needed to log in and publish her podcast. And how do we get that password and all that stuff? So we got, got her logged in on the laptop, got her logged in on her phone. You know, she's got her fingerprint ID going. So anyway, I just, th there were some pretty sizable statistics here. And I think that we all need to be careful about the fatigue that can come from hearing about, you know, this data breach, that data breach. I mean, here we go to Black Friday. We're going to have all kinds of specials. We're going to have all kinds of credit cards being used. We're moving into the holiday season, you know, and, and, and yes, we're just going to have more and more data breaches. But um, it was a pretty, pretty extensive article about that. Um, so any responses to that, Jason, and any updates on the Montana uh, hacking situation we talked about a few weeks ago, have there been any local updates where we had, you know, these, these threats that were violent and specific to a school and led to the school being closed down for a couple of days. But, but then I, I hadn't heard anything else after that. Uh, there hasn't been any updates to that, but I do think that it has heightened the, um, the, the conversation about security in schools. And one of the things that I always feel like, and, and Wes, if I'm just being paranoid, uh, it, feel free to call me out on this. Maybe it's the, my week for the tinfoil hat, right? But it feels like that there is some looming crisis here that's just waiting to drop, right? And, it, and it's not like, I, I want to be clear that, that, you know, I don't think that everyone is screwing up here or that everyone is, um, uh, you know, not doing the right thing here. But what I do think is happening that is um, uh, pretty critical is that we're not like we're, we're not spending enough time having both meaningful conversations and developing good technological tools to deal with some of this stuff. Right. Um, I still get kind of a, uh, you know, a raised eyebrow when I talk about things like two factor authentication, which we've talked about in the past year on the podcast, which forces you to have something like your phone available to you so that you can, um, you know, uh, identify yourself by both a password and a physical device that you're carrying around with you. But the bottom line is, is those types of security protocols really do lock accounts down. And ignoring for a moment the sense of uh, data that might be in a teacher account, if you're an administrator and you're not using two-factor authentication and you have administrative access to systems, you know, that that's a real problem. And so I, I think that's something we need to be more conscious of. And, you know, the, the big change based on the thing that happened in Montana and that same group has hacked a, a number of other districts across the United States, including a few in the Midwest, is that it's finally found a way to kind of weaponize data that was theoretically uh, uh, 
uh, uh, scary to release, but it's more re scary when you start to use that to start to hassle students and parents. So, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, listeners to our podcast, you know, know that, that Wes and I do tend to kind of rant on a little bit about this. But I am concerned that at some point something really bad is going to happen in regards to data. And, you know, who knows, right? Like it, it, I would hate to see a backlash based on the fact that we are, you know, we're not prepared enough for this. And, you know, I would call this, you know, the importance of, of just knowing your tech. And, and, and Wes calls this very correctly digital citizenship, right? This is what it's like to be a you know, productive citizen here in 2017. And, you know, again, a lot of this stuff was taught frequently, I think, in schools a decade ago. And it feels like we've lost this a little bit because of the ubiquity of tech. So, you know, hopefully we can figure out a way to find a middle ground to bring some of that critical instruction back to classrooms. Amen. Where to next? Okay, let's, um, this one, um, uh, two stories that are kind of the same. Let's start with the, maybe the more immediate one. Um, there, there have been some ongoing hearings in Washington, D.C., uh, in the last couple of weeks regarding the Russian hacks of our election. And we mentioned this or last week on the podcast that you know, it actually released some of the advertisements that appeared on Facebook that were bought by, by the Russian government, Russian media interests that were intended to, at the very least, divide us, if not create mis or disinformation uh, resources on social media networks. But Rico reported today that um, uh, one of my heroes of, of politics, Senator Al Franken from Minnesota, really went after the big players today uh, in social media, including Google and Facebook and Amazon. And um, what I think, what I thought of when I both read uh, quotations from this testimony and Senator Franken's response to it, um, uh, uh, and what, what I think is the critical point here, he mentioned today that these companies keep hiding behind their logarithms, right? And um, those logarithms, uh, which are uh, you know developed to give us the information we think we want, uh, we've talked about here how they end up creating echo chambers, just telling you what you already think or know. But I took this one step further than that. He says that the logarithms help these companies maintain their massive footprint in our lives. But what I thought of when I heard of that is the often mentioned uh, research and claims that we've talked about um, on how app developers, social media developers, how they're turning these tools into essentially addicting products, right? And so they're, they're, they're utilized in a way, in the same way that Vegas Gambling machines are intended to keep you there, sucking down, watered down booze and feeding dollar bills into the machine. Those same prospects are used to keep these uh, systems addicting to you. So you're going back to them over and over again. And if you take that kind of addictive nature of how the logarithm is essentially creating, um, uh, you know, a reason for you to go there because it feels good. It seems to be uh, creating some energy for you. It's telling you what you want to hear. At the same time, if it's also feeding you mis or disinformation, you can get how really challenging to democracy or, or what Senator Franken put today are fundamental rights based on the application of these technologies um, in our lives. So, Wes, um, any thoughts broadly about you know Amazon, Google, um, Facebook, any of these companies and what they might be providing? Um, 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 as, far, as far as services? And yes. Yes. 
Uh, I think we are absolutely not hearing enough about th- those, those the testimony. Uh, there's always you know, other headlines that are that are taking uh, precedence, but <clears throat> it was weird that they didn't send their top, you know, the top dogs, the big cheeses, you know, to do the the, the testimony. They sent, I think, legal counsel and. Yes. Some other folks that were, you know, more underlings and some of the senators had said, you know, next time when we ask you to come, you might, you know, just go ahead and send your boss. Um, but they're choosing their words really carefully. Some of what we're talking about can potentially threaten, you know, their entire, um, you know, model, especially as far as Google and Facebook, Amazon, not so much, right? Amazon wants to sell us things and wants to collect, you know, lots of data so that can give us targeted ads so that we'll buy things that we see ads for. But, you know, the other companies, as far as the monetization of our private data and the collection of that, and then the ongoing monetization of that, you know, I really am glad to see Europe leading in this way. And I hope that we can, in the United States, go further than we are today with, you know, what is my record? Like, I can ask for my credit record and, and see all of the things that the three big credit companies are collecting uh, about me and, and the records they have. I can appeal things if something is incorrect. But in addition to the secret algorithm of what creates the news feed or what generates um, SEO, the, the, the uh, you know, site uh, about, what is that, site engine optimization, um, you know, why, why you're higher or lower inside Google search results, you know, which has always been secret sauce. And now it's AI, machine learning. You know, it's always been a mystery and it's a game for people to play. But, um, you know, what, what does Google and, and what does Facebook and what do these companies, you know, have as records? It's, it hit me when we were talking about the note to self podcast and some of the, the privacy paradox, I think, uh, was a, was a series that they did. Yep. And they have some extensions and go back in the show notes and put in privacy paradox to get to some of those. One of those will show you what, you know, Facebook thinks it knows about you. And even if you go in now and you delete things that you've liked, well, it knows that you've liked them, right? There is, there, there is no, you know, reaching into this invisible trove of, of data, you know, about ourselves. And so I don't know. I've been thinking about this where there, there's a fine line between cool, that's helpful and ooh, that's creepy. Gosh, our sub- democracy is subverted. Now we're, you know, living in dystopia. And so, um, somewhere, you know, along, along the middle, I think we want to live and, uh, it, it is it is a trade off. So I'm glad to see the senators bringing in the tech companies to talk about this. I'm really uh, hopeful that we're not just going to you know shrug our shoulders and say okay, well you know do better regulating yourselves, guys, and you know move on. I don't think we're going to. I think that things have happened that are serious enough that have gotten enough people's attention that we're going to see you know, some kind of response, but you know what that is and whether that's going to subvert the internet or it's going to, you know, subvert the, the uh, economic model of these companies like Facebook and, and Google. It just, uh, I, I guess it really drives home the challenge of the pace of change and whether it's in school where we say we can't keep up with the kids, we can't keep up with the devices, you know, we're always chasing um, same thing, you know, politically as far as changes and, and what's happened. So um, it's, it, it's gonna, it's a continuing important target to, to look for. And I think something to think about as far as citizenship with advocacy, again, to talk about privacy and digital citizenship. We know that we've, 
always talked about citizenship as being an important part of why kids go to school and what we want to help them learn to be as responsible citizens. And, and so having knowledge about these topics and, and, and at least grappling with them, right? Because we ought to be having discussions in school about, about these issues so that, so that students are aware and, and, uh, Parents are aware, and and those who want to make the choice to become politically active about them can. Um, that's a that's obviously a fine line to walk, but I think it's it's part of citizenship. Yep, absolutely. So, okay, where next, sir? All right, uh, let's talk a little bit about some bio stuff. We've talked before on the show about you know biotech and genomics. Uh, there's a great book called uh, Industries of the Future that I, I listened to on Audible years ago and so or years ago, maybe like a year ago. Uh, and so this is an article from Engadget on, uh, well, I guess today on November 8th, EPA approves good guy mosquitoes to battle Zika. They can also prevent the uh, spread of, uh, I don't know how to say that, den- dengue uh, virus, yellow fever and other diseases. So what we have, and this has happened in South America in some places, genetically modified mosquitoes and only the males are going to be released. And when they breed with the females, the eggs they lay cannot be sustained. And so you're basically releasing these male mosquitoes that are going to then wipe out and decimate a population. Okay. This movie has been played before and you've seen multiple versions of it in terms of the unintended consequences and what happens, you know, in the natural environment when we, when we release stuff. And so, you know, this is this is a big deal. And it's interestingly not being released in all southern states where they had tested it. It's kind of like Midwestern states. So it's in 20 U.S. states and D.C. They're the places most similar in temperature and precipitation to Kentucky, New York and California, where they had tests. So Georgia and other southern states are not going to be able to do this. But I think this is pretty fascinating and as an educational, you know, uh, connection here, we need to be pointing kids to genetics, to, you know, biology, to chemistry. I, I know that that's a really small funnel. I don't know how much we realize the huge role that genetics, genomics, and the ability to manipulate these kind of things is going to be playing in our lives and is already playing <clears throat> in many of our lives. And so, I think this is an article to watch and it's a, it's a milestone, right? For this kind of thing to be approved by the, by the EPA and, you know, these mosquitoes to be released into the wild. So Jason, how was the mosquito season in Montana? Did they all burn? And, you know, is it just not a problem because the smoke kept them all out this year? Um, so in Western Montana, yeah, we didn't have nearly as bad as mosquitoes. There are places in Montana, though, and there are uh, certainly uh, places where there is uh, uh, areas of stagnant water where we do have serious mosquito problems. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I take one, one of the, the messages you said, uh, West, very much to heart that, you know, like it is exciting that we're doing such interesting things regarding, um, you know, uh, this kind of advanced biological look at the world. And uh, since we've, we've taken on more molecular and DNA-based bi- uh, DNA be- biology as a study, I, obviously there's really interesting things happening there. I was reading the other day about um, advanced Parkinson cures that are, are starting to make their way to uh, clinical trials that I think are, are super interesting. 
But yeah, there's always a risk there. And, uh, you know, not to get too scientific. And I think both uh, West and I's brains tend to go there just a little bit. You know, it, 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 uh, it certainly introduces things, but, uh, or introduces risks in, into our environment. Um, I'm always reminded of the genetic modified, modified fruit, uh, uh, that has, you know, was, uh, in the markets 20, 25 years ago when they were attempting to create better fruit and they ended up with, you know, coconut that had uh, 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 shells that were impenetrable and um, uh, bananas that uh, tasted differently, but, you know, had extraordinary calorie loads along with them. So, you know, interesting stuff. But uh, I do agree that, you know, we, we definitely need to uh, part of this is, is, is exposing students to this information can help encourage more advanced studies in these areas. I think this is exactly the kind of stuff that I'd be ripping from the headlines if I were teaching biology uh, in, in a modern classroom. Um, and if nothing else, it's interesting to keep an eye on. Awesome. All right. Where to next? Uh, let's see here. There was a, well, let's, let's talk about the Twitter thing. So, um, I, I just experienced it for the first time tonight, but Twitter has officially rolled out 280 character tweets. And so that is now the norm. And, uh, it is definitely, um, uh, it looks like it's here to stay and that, that, uh, Twitter seems uninterested in people's criticism of this. Um, and I have to start with the fact that I do find Twitter a bit challenging in discussing contentious topics, right? And one of the reasons why that, that, um, I, I do like the fact that educators connect with one another on Twitter. I love the notion of Twitter chats and, and tweet chatting as a professional development, informal professional development process. But I find that that works a lot better when you're agreeing with someone than when you're disagreeing with someone because the shorter your text, the more likely it is that you can't make the unnuanced argument which makes disagreement seem impolite. And it's something that I've run into over and over and over again. And uh, Montana has a very thriving uh, Tuesday night chat uh, called MT uh, uh, um, Ed Chat. It's a really great... Uh, uh, opportunity to meet like-minded folks that teach in and around Montana. But there have been a couple of times where I disagreed with someone and, and disagreed with what someone said, and I tried to say so, and it just got weird really quickly because it's hard to make a nuanced argument in a small chat. But at the same time, I don't think doubling tw- Twitter's space to, to 280 characters necessarily helps that process. So let's start there. Wes, are you going to start sending out extremely verbose chats due to Twitter's extension of their, um, of their, their, their tweet size? Well, I didn't, I have enjoyed it a little bit. It's, it hasn't been a bad thing. I've been able to add a few more hashtags. Um, so it, you know, it's interesting because I mean, it fundamentally changes the constraint of the medium, right? I mean, Twitter has been defined by this since its inception. So my my initial use of it is, has been fine, and I don't know that it's going to be a dramatic difference. I, I guess I I may end up adding a few more hashtags, and um, you know, I don't. I think I was a little bit in mourning because some of the fun of Twitter has been, you know, well, and, yeah. I, and my wife likes that too. You know, contrary to Facebook, you've just got to be short. You can't be long winded. Uh, but you know, I think that. It's just, it's another sign of the times, right? That things are not going to remain static and 
you know, where we might have said before, hey, I'll, you know, teach kids how to concise, you know, more concisely communicate because they'll need to do that in Twitter if they get social social media jobs. Well, you know, that that just changed. I mean, it, it didn't. It's still important to be able to do. But, um, yeah, I think they're probably doing this out of a desire to increase the number of folks signing up for Twitter, right? That's the, the problem. <clears throat> One of the biggest problems with Twitter is that they accepted investment dollars. And so these, you know, stockholders are wanting to see huge returns on that investment. And they look at the number of people enrolling and signing up and Twitter, you know, has hit a plateau. So um, they're not going to, you know, destroy the platform in, in their, you know, chase, chase for dollars. Um, so I don't, do you know if they're, if they're profitable yet? Have they been able to turn a profit? I, my, my memory suggests no. Um, but part of it is, is that, I mean, I, part of it's that I don't really see where they might be getting that profit from. I mean, obviously I see promoted tweets as, as part of my feed. Um, but, but to be quite honest, um, I, you know, I didn't really see how Google would be initially profitable either because I really didn't notice the tiny ads, um, on, on the right of the screen. And so, uh, you know, maybe that means that if they are heading towards profitability and I don't really notice it or it's not overt, then that's probably the best way to be profitable. But it's certainly an interesting phenomenon that they're headed in that direction. Shout out to both Marta in uh, Honduras and Peggy George in, in Arizona in our chat room. Peggy points out, you know, just because you have 250 characters or 280 characters doesn't mean you have to use them all. So it doesn't necessarily right. mean it needs to change anybody's communication. But to your right. point, Jason, I think that is a really good one that, you know, when you are when you're trying to express something that just requires more elaboration, right. it should be a positive. Now, whether that's going to change that dynamic in Twitter chats and we're going to, you know, be having robust, you know, and contentious debates, you know, we, we could sponsor a, a special EdTech SR Twitter chat on the Chromebook topic and just <laughs> offer up, you know, Gary Steger for folks to either uh, skewer or, you know, love on in terms of his article. I will be seeing him next week uh, in, in Cairo. He's one of the speakers at this Edge Forum that I'm going to. So I'd actually told Jason it'll be fine if we postpone that a little bit more. We get our thoughts together, right? Um, so, but yeah, it's gonna it'll be interesting to see to see the effect. I don't think it's going to cause lots more people to flock to the platform, frankly, but it might, you know, allow us to be a little bit more developed in our ideas. And if it deepens the conversation and it allows for better communication you know, rah, rah, Twitter, then, then that sounds great. But right. I, I personally think that we could have been just fine, you know, sticking with that prior limit. Well, and I've seen a lot of, of, of innuendo regarding um, uh, the president of the United States and, and his proclivity to use Twitter to uh, uh, to send things directly to the public. And honestly, 280 characters doesn't fix that problem if you perceive there is one with the way our, our, our president is currently doing that. Because the bottom line is, I don't expect him to change his rhetorical style because suddenly he has double the number of tweets or characters in his tweet. And that's where, I mean, I, you know, I think Twitter is, Twitter is what Twitter is, right? And part of the reason why they are experiencing, I think, some struggle to grow uh, in the exponential way that Facebook and Google <coughs> has grown is because I think it has its place and it may not go any farther than that. I think I was just having this conversation with my dad a week or so ago. He was trying to clean out his phone because it, it, a bunch of apps are kind of installed there over time and he wasn't keeping close eye on it. And he says, why the hell would I want to get on Twitter? Those are sack words. And I said, you don't need to get on Twitter. 
I said, for you, it makes really no sense to do so. But, you know, I think if you find a positive engagement thing on there, that's, that's not just engaging. I think sometimes in the, um, you know, uh, negative back and forth, I think that's a positive thing. Remember, a third of all Twitter accounts are bots, right? They're not there to share with you um, enlightenment. They're there to send marketing messages, send dis or misinformation, or even send out positive things. But it's not necessarily the people's platform, as I think sometimes it's, it's given credit for. Well, I'm glad you said that because that links back to what we were talking about with the testimony of the, the big tech companies. That would be the number one most important and I think potentially likely uh, outcome of all this is addressing anonymity in social media. And as yep. some of the folks pointed out there, as long as we have, you know, this, this opportunity to be anonymous on a platform like Facebook or Twitter, then as an open democracy and open society, then we're going to be very open to manipulation and, you know, potentially subversion by uh, outside forces. And I, and of course, if we, if we go down the road of verified accounts, Facebook has already been doing that. And I think maybe South Korea was one of the countries that really, you know, pushed that with whatever their equivalent uh, Facebook was. Um, you know, then that raises the specter of surveillance and, you know, everyone has a number and in order to communicate or trade, you must show your barcode in order to, you know, be able to do that. And so I don't know. I think that that's a very, that's a very tough thing. But it, again, it's like a core principle. It's like, do you want to allow folks to be anonymous? I, I, we've talked about, you know, even local newspapers and how ugly things can get there and uh and some people don't care whether they you know are identifying themselves or not but definitely see that as a big issue and again what a great topic to talk about with students you know should we allow for you know anonymous commenting at school in a chat that you're having with your class you know on youtube in politics um i just think there's there's some phenomenal if nothing else you can get some great writing prompts out of some of these issues that we're talking about here on the show and by the way shout out if anybody you know uses any of these things with your kids have them have them do some writings have have a debate uh, let us know you know reach out to us on on twitter and uh let us know cuz that would be be good to to hear what you end up doing yep absolutely so Okay. I'd like to uh, really quickly talk about an article from Wired, if I could. Um, this, the article, if you look at the webpage, it's the title says, Net States Rule the World. We Need to Recognize Their Power. And when I read, I don't know if they've changed the, the, the title or if sometimes when you tweet it or, or share it, you know, it's different. The, the headline I had originally shared said, Facebook and Google are actually net states and they rule the world. So this is Wired Magazine on November the 4th. And um, it's very interesting. It, it talks about how powerful, you know, groups like Anonymous and, um, you know, during, uh, well, WikiLeaks and, and then also ISIS and these these different non-state actors uh, have been with regard to, you know, uh, political revolution and, and incidents that have happened. And it's basically saying that, you know, well, when it comes to ISIS and terrorism, the United States isn't understanding the ideas that they're fighting against. And so, you know, drone attacks and bombs are not going to address this. But it's saying that, you know, governments ought to look at even partnering with net states and as a political scientist, I know Jason loves loves uh, debate and, and politics, just the whole idea of sovereignty, you know, and where power 
is located and who exerts that and, and the role of, of these net states, which, you know, you can look at our, our big Silicon Valley tech companies as net states. You can look at these ad hoc hacker groups like Anonymous as, as a net state. And you can, you know, even look at ISIS and, and WikiLeaks. So, uh, what do you think, Jason? Do you think that, uh, that governments, what, what would your strategy be? We're going to promote you to, you know, Secretary of State thinking about, you know, digital engagement with the world. Is, is, what do you, what do you do with a group like, with, uh, anonymous and these other non-state actors. I mean, I, I'm not sure I have the answer to that. So I'm not expecting you to necessarily have one off the cuff, but it, I think it's a pretty fascinating, you know, case study in sovereignty in the ways that the world is changing in terms of how not just ideas are changed, but I mean, these groups like anonymous with the denial of service attacks and things like that. I mean, they, they have affected real change um, in, in some different situations. Um, so when I first, uh, I saw this headline, uh, it, it, it bounced around, uh, you know, netdom quite a bit, uh, in the last, uh, uh, couple of days. But when I first read this headline, the first couple of paragraphs, I was thinking of the, let me be clear, fictionalized story of Mark Zuckerberg's, uh, uh, creation of Facebook. The social network was the name of the movie. I think it was a 2012 movie, maybe 2010. Excellent film. Um, huge gaps between the film and, and, and reality. But uh, the character played by Justin Timberlake um, uh, talks about, and I, I think he was high at the time, but he said, you know, like, we used to live on farms and then we lived on cities and the future will live on the internet. And, you know, everyone's like in awe with his wisdom. And I, I thought about that because in a lot of ways, the internet has created a brand new social structure that we're still really coming to terms with, right? In the same way that we had awkward transitions with urbanization in Europe and, and in North America uh, during the Industrial Revolution, and it took us a while to kind of find our footing and some social movements to be able to protect human beings in those environments, I did you know, kind of uh, reflect on the fact that the same thing is happening right now with these social networks, right? They're, they're omni-national, which means they, they pull from people of, of diverse lifestyles uh, around the world. Um, it's an extraordinary um, um, uh, a thing that, that it's creating, and I, I'm not sure if we have answers to these things yet to be able to know what to do to provide the humanity that we want as part of our social networks. And, you know, we talk about this loosely a lot here on the podcast. It's something I'm very interested in, both as a research topic and also um, as, as an educator. You know, we've introduced all these amazing technologies in our lives, and we're still coming to terms with what they do, right? The stuff that's happening right now with Facebook and the Russian hacking um, influences on the election, that is a an event that happens when you don't know what to do with an extraordinarily powerful technology. And you mentioned Anonymous, um, Wes, as, as another example of that. And I still don't know, you know, like regulations seem so, you know, dim in the way of approaching this right yeah. like and i think i think legislators have acknowledged that right i think it was uh, senator barbara boxer that said that you guys fix this or we'll step in to do so and i think part of the reason why the first answer is you guys fix this is because i don't even know how you regulate this in a way yeah. that's going to get rid of the problems right? i don't so think it's figure it out yeah it's not regulation and i think um I am positive. I have no access to classified information for the record, <clears throat> but I have friends who, you know, have both worked for the government and for, for contractors who 
have, have studied and were studying things, you know, 15 and 20 years ago, like the role of storytelling for recruitment for, you know, groups like Al Qaeda and, and other kinds of extremist groups. And so, you know, yes, the Russians had this very elaborate information, you know, subversion, uh, and whatever you, whatever you call their, their efforts to, get Hillary Clinton defeated and, and Donald Trump elected. I mean, we've been doing this kind of thing with our intelligence services since the dawn of time, at least 1947, when, you know, the, the CIA, I guess, was formally created, and even before that with OSS. And so anyway, it's, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't think regulation and looking to Congress for this, I think it's going to be, you know, in the intelligence community and in the executive branch and the ways in which, Hopefully, savvy leaders are able to, you know, look at situations and and also look at prospective partners because I don't think the our authors of the article were necessarily saying that regulation was going to be the path forward, but it right. might it might be that strategies, you know, when you're trying, if <laughs> this is confusing and I'm not going to pretend to understand it, but if you just look at the coalition that has opposed ISIS, which I guess has pretty much taken away most of their territory now, right? Like they've lost, I think, pretty much their large cities that they were holding. You know, I mean, like we were allied with Iran and, you know, groups that we weren't typically going to be with, you know, in the name of defeating ISIS, you know, we had, we have uh, had some common, common ground. And so anyway, it's very situational and, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know that anybody's going to be controlling anonymous. And I, I still haven't finished wa watching all of Mr. Robot, by the way, there's a shout out, which it is not safe for work. There's some very not appropriate, you know, don't let your kids or grandkids or whatever be around if you're going to watch that show. But it is so fascinating <clears throat> thinking about, you know, non-state actors and, and hacktivists and, and people who are going to be, you know, wanting to, Push, stick it to the man or, you know, what, whatever their, their, their motivation is. And so Peggy mentioned that that term net state was new to her. It is to me as well. I think the author of the article is actually proposing that as a new term. And it definitely, you know, reflects changing realities in, in the world and changing power structure and the, the, the new landscape that we do have of not just interactions for, Hey, let's find stuff out for school, but, you know, political movements and, and governments. And it's going to be very interesting to, to talk to folks in Egypt. Um, you know, after how, however many years it's been since Arab Spring, wasn't that like in 2011 or something like that? Maybe 2010. It's been quite a few years and these, these tools are, uh, yeah, we won't go in depth in Saudi Arabia and what's, oh, shoot. Ah. I think I'm still on. Wow. I may have to edit this. Uh, I think I've either, either Jason has just gone offline or I am here by myself. Peggy, are you uh, still seeing us or? The bummer. Okay, you can still hear me. Yay, that's great. Uh, the bummer about having something like this happen if we don't keep talking is there ends up being a large gap in the recording, and that's a, that's a real problem. So looks like Jason is joining again. There he is. Can you Hi. hear me? Yeah, that, that was, was weird. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I kept talking a little bit. So I, the real bummer is if you got to edit the video because then you got to recompress it and all this stuff. 
So, you know, I, maybe it's time for Geeks of the Week, Jason. Although, do you want to take us to – you had a heck of a lot of other articles. Do you want to take us to another article or two before we Geek of the Week it? Uh, no, I, I think I'm okay. There's a, a couple there that will hold. One of the things I think I want to talk about uh, next episode, however, is um, the notion of whether or not you should be covering up your webcam. And there is a really excellent article um, from, I think it was the, the Verge, and someone tackles this, and they actually talk to some people that are advocates for doing this and whether or not that's a good idea. Um, so, you know, let's, let's maybe tackle that in a future week, and we could share our own personal stories of that, and we'll go from there. So, uh, let me start with my geek here, and um, you know, as as uh, uh, past viewers might know, I, I am kind of a geek, and so I like to try out new stuff. And one of the things that I did was I backed a Kickstarter project uh, several months ago that came to fruition. And I got to say, um, I'm about seventy uh, percent on Kickstarter projects. Uh, uh, I've maybe funded ten or eleven of them. Two or th- or two or three of them either didn't come to fruition. Or they, um, you know, sent me something that was clearly a piece of garbage. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is the Jelly Phone. And the reason why the Jelly Phone is interesting is because it is a two-inch screen. And so this is an Android 7.0 phone with a two-inch screen. It's a full Android phone, right? There's no compromise here on the operating system. It can do anything that a typical Android phone can do. It's an unlocked Android phone. It costs me around $100. The retail price will be a little uh, a little more than that uh, when they release to the general public. But it arrived this week, and I got to say, it does have some shortcomings that I'll talk about in a moment. But it's a really interesting concept because um, I, you know, am looking for ways to not be as engaged in my phone. And what this this little tiny phone does is that it provides me what I like about my phone. It doesn't distract me by the things that I like, but maybe too much, but are, are more fast food bits of information than that. Um, and again, brand new or, or a newer version of Android, Android 7.0, which is the one released in 2016. And I've been able to run all of my apps on it. And again, just a two inch screen with a tiny battery. Now I gotta say, there's some, there's some real issues here about making this a daily driver. And probably one of them is really easy for me to, um, uh, to demonstrate. Um, the keyboard on here is wickedly tiny. And um, you could see on here that here's the phone, there's the tiny keyboard, and it is really small. And it's typeable. I'm able to send text messages, but it's not great. But the problem with it is, is that my uh, my way of dealing with that would be to simply use the, the uh, voice-to-text uh, part of Android, but for whatever reason, that's not turned on on this phone. And my guess is it's because of the modest specs they're involved in the delivery of the phone itself. Also, I'm an Android Wear user. I love my Android Wear watch. Since my Fitbit's band died and it's become a pocket thing for me and not a wrist thing, I've been wearing my Android Wear watch every day, and the newest version of the operating system is amazing. But because of, again, the modest specs on this particular device, um, it, uh, uh, it doesn't stay connected with my watch throughout the day. So using my watch as kind of a peripheral device, as an input device for this, will be actually very interesting, but it doesn't really work that way. So I'm, I'm sad to report that while I've been entertained by this, and it's actually a heck of a media player. I dropped a 128-gigabyte card from another phone that I had in here, and 
downloaded a bunch of music, and then, you know, the true test for me is when I'm able to watch The West Wing on Netflix, which is my escapism show, and um, actually the phone works quite well um, for as a video player, and so there is The West Wing um, as a uh, uh, as a device. So that's the Jelly Phone. The link is in this week's show notes, and of course our show notes are always at our website, edtechsr.com, and it's at least a distraction, and it could be a full-time phone for me, so I'm going to play with it for the next couple of weeks or so and see what happens. But that's the Jelly Phone um, by Unihertz, um, a up-and-coming phone manufacturer. Awesome. Well, my Geek of the Week is actually a video that was shared at our G-Camp OKC. We had uh, somewhere, we think, around a little over 100 folks that, that came together for our first Google Focus conference. And uh, did you see the movie Lion, the 2016, about the, the guy in India that finds his way home? Okay, so here you go. This is going to be a movie that you guys have to go see. So <clears throat> the video that I dropped in is called um, uh, Saru Briarly Homeward Bound. It's just three minutes. Um, but this is one of those amazing videos that, that Google and, of course, sometimes alcohol companies and others will put together that will just touch your heart. And this is just oh, you know too amazing almost to be true, but the, the 2016 movie Lion was about this, and I'm going to read just a little brief excerpt from the English Wikipedia article for 